0: So the theme is, Lord, give me a wise and listening heart. Father Paul gave this to me and our Mr. Deacon and myself, we talked a long time about what we should do. And, and we kind of agreed to something. And then I had kind of a bit of a different idea again. And, and so I thought we would just pick this, this prayer apart. And we, we have four talks. So we would do it on, on different mm, parts of this prayer. And I would like to start with, like, Lord, give me a wise and listening heart. I would start with the listening part. Um, you know this idea of a listening heart. Lord, give me a listening heart. And again, this is Solomon praying, and he's asking God for wisdom. You no, know, he's asking him for how shall I, how shall I uh, rule this people? And it's interesting if we, if we look at, if we look at the at this prayer. Give therefore your servant understanding, uh, understanding heart, to judge thy people that I may discern between good and evil. Um, here in this translation, this listing already has something of the connotation of understanding of something. is kind of intellectual, no? It's something that that touches that touches on the intellect, and that's why I would like to go deeper. But I would like to make a contrast between this, where he's, t- he's asking to be able to discern between good and evil, and what Adam and Eve say, um, or better better said, the serpent says to Adam and Eve, um, "You shall know the difference." Between good and evil. So it's kind of a similar thing. One is pleases God a lot and the other one doesn't at all. Trying to see here the difference. So on the one hand, you have Solomon recognizing somehow that I need to be able to, in my, in my responsibility for this nation, for my in my in my faculty as as king of this of this nation, I need to be able to understand things as they are. What is really good and what is really bad, and you know, what is really good and what is really bad. It presupposes that he he thinks there's something like an objective good, an objective evil, and something like an objective truth outside of just what he wants it to be. And that he wants to be able to understand that. You no, know, it's not like he I am the inventor of good and evil, but there's a good and evil out there, and I need to try to be able to understand that, because if not, I'm not going to be able to make right decisions. I'm gonna make really bad decisions. I'm gonna make stupid decisions. So that's his prayer. And, and if you look at the Adam and Eve story, St. John Paul II would say, Genesis is written in a mythical language. Not that everything is garbage, which is written there, are a whole bunch of just stories, but sometimes a picture can tell you a lot more than a thousand words, you know, sometimes an image will be able to able to explain something in a lot simpler way. But they, these pictures of Genesis are very, very, very deep. You know, they say something very deep about the human person. And you you have this story between Adam and Eve, and they're they're sitting there and they're sitting on the bottom of this apple tree. And there's thousands of things in the in that garden. No, interestingly enough, there's actually John Paul. What he says, he takes. He takes an image from another book of the Bible called the the Song of Songs, which is more or less in the middle of the Old Testament. And there it says, my bride is an enclosed garden. And John Paul takes this idea of my bride is an enclosed garden. Beautiful image, you no? Know, because it talks about freedom, it talks about respect, about evaluating the other person. You can't just go there in with a sledgehammer and tear down the wall. But she's got to open the door so that you can go into that sphere of intimacy. Um, Anyway, so he takes that image and he, and he kind of he puts it on top of the first three chapters of Genesis where Adam and Eve are in a garden. So one way to read Genesis is this intimate sphere between man and woman. And there's tons of things in that garden. You know? Among other things, there's an apple tree. And the other day I was thinking, well, maybe the apple was just Adam, uh, just Eve. You know, this idea of instead of allowing myself to be gifted by the other, I, you know, they're... they're greedfully you know, grabbing the apple instead of like, it's the opposite of love. You no know, allowing yourself to be loved and receive love as a gift. It's, it's grabbing what, what I want for myself. And, and then all of a sudden in that moment, before they do that, there's this temptation and the devil is telling them, the serpent is telling them, you know, um, just like what God says is good is really bad. And what he says is bad is really good. So you choose what's good and what's bad. you know, Because he's, he's not really your dad. He's not really a father. He's kind of like a tyrant, and he's trying to make your life difficult. So um, it's better you don't trust him. I mean, this is all between the lines, obviously, you know, in what you read in Genesis. But really what, what the serpent is doing is is trying to destroy the image that they have of God. Before God was a father, was someone... And obviously for us also fatherhood sometimes, I don't know how, how it is for all of you, but sometimes in our modern world, the idea of fatherhood is not always that positive because we've made negative experience with our own father sometimes. And so, um, and so we need to kind of purify that idea. No, but, but the idea here, one of the basic ideas is that at the very beginning of history or this, because the Adam and Eve story is not just the story of something that happened who knows how many years ago, but it's like, it's your story and it's my story. It's a paradigmatic story. It's like an archetypal story. And so it's like, it's talking about you and it's talking about me. And, and one of the biggest temptations for the human person right at the beginning of history is, is to see God not as somebody who's a giver of gifts, not somebody who's there for the flourishing of the human person, but he's trying to just make us miserable. No, he's kind of, a, he's, he's kind of on the other side. He's kind of the bad guy in a story. And so I've got to kind of defend myself from him and, and I can't trust him. And so the temptation is to say, well, what he says is good is actually bad. And what he says is bad is actually good. So it's actually the temptation is to call God a liar in a certain way. You know? And you think about that's what happens every time we sin when we sin is nothing else but like misusing our freedom. And and that's what happens is that, you know, I, I, somebody like this voice in says that don't tell this lie. And, but when I tell it, what I'm actually saying in practice is, well, no, it's good to lie right now. If not, I wouldn't do it. Right? I mean, afterwards, maybe I'm mad at myself. Why did I do that? No, why did I trust that? But at the end of the day, every sin is at the, is always that. It's always a lack of trust that what God says is good is really good. And what God says is bad is really bad. No, it's a lack of, of confidence in this in this relationship. So what the serpent tries to do is he tries to sunder the relationship between... The father and his children, in his in his fa- in his family, he and that's what he always does. He, the diabolos in Greek comes from division. He always tries to divide things. You know, he tries to separate. He tries to destroy. And so, at the very beginning, we see this this temptation to um, kind of yeah, not trust that what God says object is objectively true for you is is really so. And. Um, Now I'd like to, hopefully this doesn't get too philosophical, we're going to try and make this practical at the end, you know, but, but, um, and please do give feedback, you know, like in the pauses or write something or tell father, or Mr. Deacon Wolfgang, Deacon Wolfgang, you know, <coughs> or Wolfgang or Wolfgang or whatever. You know, you know, English speakers usually have a really hard t- time to say that word, but. Um, give him feedback so like if this getting too you know too theoretical or something let let, let him know but so i'd like to kind of give you a kind of a back quick quick review of why this idea is very modern is very much invoked today and i'd like to go back to this to this fellow and and i'm sure you've all heard of him um his his famous i think therefore i am now where Really, the whole of history of philosophy before him would have said the opposite. I am, therefore I can think. Now, Descartes himself was a pretty pious person. He, you know, he believed in God, and, and I'm sure he didn't think of all the consequences of what he was saying. But other people then, after him, started to, to apply that idea, kind of the, the move away from the object to the subject. Now, he's the beginning of, modern, of the modern world. In the very last book of, of St. John Paul II before he dies, he he talks about him as kind of the father of the modern age, where you're moving towards a much more subjective view of reality, So others would take this idea and then apply it to the idea of truth. Truth (coughs) is not what it is objectively, but truth, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And now philosophically speaking, in the history of philosophy, you had two kinds of truth. One was called logical truth, which is the correspondence of my mind with reality. So, for example, I'm in the truth if I accept that this is a cup of tea. I'm not in the truth if I say this is a car. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not a phys, um, physicist and I, I'm not a chemist. I have no idea how this, you know, all, how this thing is all put together. And you can always go deeper into the truth of this cup of tea. But the point is, it's not a car and it's not an ocean liner. And it's not a cloud. It's a cup of tea. And is there a door there? Yeah, you notice it if you try to go through it when it's closed. You, know? you can always go deeper into the, the truth of that door, but it's a door. There's a door there. So what, what determines reality and what determines truth of real things is not what I would like it to be, but that thing. That's the classical view of truth. Truth is correspondence of my mind with reality. And I'm more in the truth, the more I'm in correspondence with the reality outside of myself. That was called logical truth, but there's also something that was called in a, in a classical Aristotle or um, Plato or whatever. You know, they would talk about ontological truth. It's a complicated word, but it's the idea is simple. It's just the other way around. Truth is the correspondence of something with the mind, and and this was in a classical philosophy true of God. So something corresponds is in the is ontologically true if it corresponds with what God thought when he created it. So, for example, the human person. Now, we are images of God. And we were mentioning this yesterday at the beginning of the Mass. And what is what is God? Who is God? God is love. And, and that means that we're images of love. And that means that the human person is living in the truth of his being when he's living in love. And when he's an egotist and he's just thinking about himself, then, as you say in German, er lebt am Leben vorbei. Now, then he's He's kind of missing it. He's living an existential lie because he's not corresponding to what God thought about him when he created him. And, and that's always going to make him frustrated. No, and at, at the end of the day, it's going to destroy him. If he continues down that road, he's going to be more and more frustrated and more and more, how um, shall I say, say, losing himself because he's not living the truth of what he is. And and that's a problem. Now, for example, if I would, if I would um, climb up St. Stephen's dome in Vienna, where I live, and jump down because I think I'm a bird, well, then I will very quickly realize that, well, one, I'm not a bird, and two, through a free decision, I will have destroyed my freedom because I will be dead. I won't be able to exercise any more freedom because I've just destroyed it <coughs> through a free decision. No? So it's like not everything I do just because I want to do it is going to help me to become freer or to become more human, a human person or be more flourishing or to be become the best version of myself. Right. It's just not. So again, the idea here is that um, there is something called ontological truth and logical truth. And. What happens with modernity with other philosophers after Descartes, in English, we say there's nothing more concrete than an idea, you know, because people started applying these ideas to concrete things. And after Descartes, little by little, well, ontological truth was applied to the human person. We got rid of God. So now truth is what I want it to be. Truth is something is true when it corresponds to what I want it to be like. You know? and well, my humble submission as, as a Christian is to say, well, that's pretty, that's pretty insane. Um, that's pretty insane. It doesn't lead to, to human flourishing, but at the end of the day, um, it leads to the human person maybe sometimes you know, really, really messing things up. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a British, British adventurist. She's called Megan Hind. I don't know if somebody called, heard about it. She worked together or works together with Bear Grylls. I don't know if he rings the bell somebody likes adventure stuff, then you might know Bear Grylls, but um, she's pretty high-end adventurist. And, and she wrote a book a little while ago called um, Soldiers of a Survivor. And, and there's a lot of stuff in the book I don't like, but I really like this quote. And it says, you know, acceptance helps us to ditch our emotional baggage and to think more clearly because we're no longer sapping our energy fighting reality. And it's a great idea. Um, the, the picture in the background is um, myself and a few others. Last summer we were in Switzerland and we, uh, we had the opportunity to do four, two 4,000-meter 4, mountains. And it was pretty crazy because in nine days and we went, I think, 10,000 altitude meters up and 10,500 down and 156 kilometers and with 25-kilogram backpacks. and It was pretty insane a little bit. But um, whenever you go up one of these glaciers... You know you can say well okay there's there's a crevice you know there's a gletscherspalte now i can say i don't like that gletscherspalte i don't like that crevice to be where it is but up there you're pretty ready and pretty prepared to accept reality for what it is because if not you end up killing yourself okay. and it's for me surprising a lot of times like up there like what seems to be so obvious down here, in other reality parts of our lives, we don't sometimes think it that way. You know, it's like, no, reality has to become what I would like it to be. And, and that's, just not, that's just not very, very, very smart. Um, there's another quote from the same vein that says, when you can't change the facts, your only option is to change your attitude. When you can't change the facts, your only option is to change your attitude. Um, and that means acceptance of reality is the same as to say the acceptance of of the truth of things. Now, again, this morning in the morning prayer we're kind of mentioning you know, that one of the basic Christian ideas is this. Now, what we we're just saying that that um, human flourishing has to do with not just fulfilling what comes into your mind or something that you would like to be the way it is that, but It's accepting of of a gift that comes from outside. It's accepting of reality as it is. And it's not speaking just your truth into things, but accepting the truth of the things that present themselves to you. And that has a lot to do with what we call contemplation. And um, contemplation could be defined, I mean, this is kind of an idea um, from Thomas Aquinas. Um, Contemplation is a simple gaze at the truth under the influence of love. So it's this capacity of, of Adam or Eve to stand at the bottom of this apple tree and just be amazed, you know, just gaze at it before wanting to do anything with that apple. It's like, um, I don't know if you remember the, the part of this Adam and Eve story where Adam just wakes up from his sleep and he sees naked Eve coming towards him. And this is a be- really beautiful scene and it's very, very deep you know, because she's naked and she's a paradigm of womanhood. So she's probably not the ugliest woman that ever walked on the face of the earth. You know? And he sees her in all her beauty and he realizes what this is going to mean for him. And what's his reaction? Hey man, that's pretty cool. No, that's not what he says. He says, this finally is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, of course he sees the differences between his body and her body. And he, of course he realizes what that's going to mean for him. But his first reaction is not, how can, you know, so many body parts is going to give me my satisfaction. But what he's capable of seeing is through her body to see her, to see her herself. You know? um, and that's something very, very beautiful. I remember just shortly talking to someone who was talking to this um, kind of well-known photographer. And he was taking pictures of, of some pretty rundown people, let's say very very interesting pictures and and you know the question for him was look what what like what is your reaction when you when when you when you see a person like that you no know? and um, do, do you call that beautiful is that beautiful and then he was like he had to think for a moment you no know, and he says um <laughs> and and he says actually I didn't even think about that. I, was just, I just saw Jamie. And I thought that was very beautiful because he was capable of seeing the person and not just what that person was going to mean for him or that, or that, um, that kind of reaction of that, and the exterior part of the person. I don't know if you're getting what I'm trying to say. Is that there's kind of this gaze of love which comes from my heart which helps me to see things in a in a deeper way than if I would just see them in like in a, in a with this with this wanting to grab the apple attitude because this wanting to grab the apple attitude really reduces my vision no I don't really see reality anymore but I only see reality in insofar that it serves me and contemplation helps us to see the truth of things it and that needs and we're going to talk about that the next um, the next talk but Obviously that needs a certain amount of interior freedom to be able to do that um, and to live in that way. Um, Now, when we're talking about this idea of contemplation, I think there's different areas we need to learn how to to see things that way. And first of all, it's in regard to ourselves. Um, For example, like if A typical thing that happens. No, I don't know, like the the parents, the child was two or three years old and the parents had to go away for the weekend and somebody else had to take care of the kids. And there was no bad intention after that, but all of a sudden the child, as it's growing up, has this kind of, this this feeling, oh, I don't, I'm not good for anything. Or I will always be alone. Or there's these certain sentences that come up that like that, what happened causes a certain wound in my heart and that causes certain almost like dogmatic sentences to come up I'm not good enough I'm not beautiful enough I'm never going to f- find someone I'm lonely um, and and that's not the truth of things but that's what I think it is that way because of what had happened because of this wound which happened and contemplation what it ha- helps me to do is to see myself first of all as God sees me he, he, to see myself with that, that image of, of, of what he sees when he sees me. For example, when I entered the monastery, I left the church, ich bin aus der Kirche ausgetreten, when I was 18. I wasn't gone for long, and obviously I'm back, as you can see. But um, when I came back and I entered the, the monastery, I mean, it wasn't total chaos, but like there was, it was not so easy to get you know, accustomed to things. And I remember there was one of the, the people in charge, one of the priests in charge. Um, they really impressed me because I could see that he really believed in me. Um, and he saw something in me that I couldn't see. And that was like super inspiring. I don't know if you've made an experience like that. Now, when you realize that there's somebody, like through the eyes of someone else, you start to see yourself deeper in a, in a new way that you haven't been able to see yourself before. And... If you take that and apply it to God, well, that's, you know, it's just infinitely more because each one of us, our deepest definition understood as a, from a Christian perspective is that we're gifts of God for the world. That's what our deepest definition is, is we are, um, we are his images of love, we are entering into this, into this logic of, of self-giving of God for the world. So he, each one of us has a certain gift, has a certain series of gifts, has a certain um, something to give to the world. And that's something beautiful and great and wonderful. And, and a lot of times, because of things that happen, because of expectations of others, because of encountering my own weakness and making mistakes, I kind of lose sight of that vision, and I start, of, I start to think of myself less than what I am. And um, that's, I don't know how it is for the ladies. I notice a lot of times for the guys, it's, you know, we seem so strong and we know what we want and we're so self-sure. But I know a lot of guys that are really, really, really questioning their, themselves: if they're good enough, if they're going to make it, if they're going to. You know, there's so much self-doubt um, because we stop seeing ourselves as God sees us. And we stop losing to have that capacity of having that attitude of contemplation and seeing ourselves for who we are and not just for what we do you know a lot of times i think this is also another consequence of this modern view of of the human person we are my value depends on what i do instead of who i am you know german the german um, economy loses between 1 and 4 billion euros a year because of burnout depending what on what study you read you no know? and that's a complicated theme burnout i know but a lot of times it's because people look for their identity in what they do, in their Leistungsfähigkeit, you know, in their performance, and rather than who they are as a, as a person. And they start identifying themselves with their own value dependent on what they bring to the table, so to speak. You know, what, what their performance is, instead of who they are in their deepest being. Okay. A lot of times too, there's there's different types of distractions that help, that don't allow us to see things as they are. For example, um, I just remember talking to someone the other day and his dad always told him, he's a businessman and and, da- and the son was taking over the business and he says, if somebody leaves your business, close the door and don't look back. And now a few years later, this guy had a really high performance, a really great guy working for him He decided to go to another company and Three months later, he came back asking, sorry, I made a mistake. Um, can I come back? No. And at the beginning, this guy said, no way. But but why was he saying no way? Because this idea that his, his, his father had implanted into his brain had become almost like an axiom, almost like a truth claim, almost like something which is absolutely true at all places and everywhere. If somebody leaves, close the door and don't look back. And I was distracting him. I think in English you call this, you're starting you start to find a term for this, called white distraction. Like this kind of distraction from the truth of things, because it's not the truth of things, but there's something there that, that hinders me from seeing things as they are. And usually they're one of three things. It's either, um, we call this in classical terms, old fashioned, maybe a little bit, pride, sensuality, or, or vanity. And also the three temptations that Christ had when he was on top of the mountain, if you remember. And and the first temptation is to look for my identity in what I have instead of who I who I am. You know? So it's 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 more um, the person who who needs things and who thinks because he has certain things, he is somebody. And that's that temptation of materialism or which sometimes can be all seen purely. So it's it's for example it's to look for my identity in how I feel instead of who I am. Um, so when I feel bad I need to do something to feel good again. I go to the fridge, I go on the internet, look at things, don't you know, don't need maybe, I go shopping, something to give me a feeling of self-worth again. Go to a party, you no? Know, and because I need to feel good, because if not feel if I don't feel good, I am nobody. And that's a problem, right? Because our identity because for that person who looks for his identity and who, what he has, it's not just, okay, I don't feel so good today, but it's an existential problem. I am nobody if I don't have these things. The second temptation is, Jesus, throw yourself down from the temple, and everybody's going to say, hey, you're pretty cool messiah. You're awesome. You know, you're, Nothing happened to you. It's a temptation of vanity. It's, it's a temptation to look for my identity, not in what I have, but in what other people think about me. And so I build up a facade around my, my house, which is not me, but I try to project that to the outside that other people think that about me. So I look for affirmation. I, almost sometimes it can be like a suchtverhalten, kind of like a bestätigungssucht, um, like a, almost a, an addiction to affirmation. If I don't get affirmed from somebody, I am nobody. Um, and again, that's a huge problem because the kind of affirmation that I'm looking for, nobody can give it to me. I, I see that a lot of times in, in couples even you know, when you when you're going out or even when you're married you know you're looking you're looking for an affirmation from your partner that at the end of the day that person can't give to you so that you're 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 smothering the other person with expectations because what you're hoping from the other person at the end the only god can give it to you and the other person is not like god so you know smell, wake up and smell the coffee you know um, and on the other hand so i'm i'm smothering the person with, with my with my expectations and the other person is saying I'm never good enough for you and it's true he isn't and and I'm frustrated because well that person is not giving me what I want so it looks so nice I'm making the other almost like a god for me I'm putting him on the pedestal he's so great and he's so awesome I can't live without that person I said you can't live without that person I mean you say that in a romantic moment but if that's true if you can't live without the other person well that's a problem because then that's that's called codependency or dependency Right, there's no, there's a lack of freedom there, and you to be free, you need. I mean, to, yeah, that, love has to do with freedom. You can't say to somebody, "You've got to love me." Understand? You no, know, love can only be a free gift. The apple, you can only give it to the person. You shouldn't be grabbing it because if not, you're destroying the gift. You're destroying love. Um, and then the third temptation from from uh, we see is the devil comes up to Jesus and says, again, these are paradigmatic temptations. You no, know, it's like a it's an archetypal type of temptation this is like again our story it's my story not just the story of jesus and it's a temptation of pride it's not not to look for my identity in in the things i have not to look for it in other people or what they think about me but to look for my identity in at the end of the day myself um, fall down and i will give you control over everything It's a, it's somehow to think that if i've got control um, I'm somebody No, it's, this, it's more than looking for my identity in myself it's looking for my identity in what I'm capable of doing so now I'm putting myself on the pedestal and the scriptures say the Bible says the just man falls seven times a day so at least seven times a day that image I have of myself goes explodes into a thousand pieces because I realize I'm not that person I would like to be I've, I've got limitations I'm not God either and so what happens is on the other, this is pride you know, I'm looking for my, for my, my identity in what I'm capable of doing in my performance capability in my leistungsfähigkeit, <coughs> and on the other hand, though the prideful person very often is extremely frustrated, above all with himself, and this is so dangerous because that oh, I'm so terrible, I'm you know we start we part we put our our favorite song in our. On our playlist and and load it up to Spotify and it's called How Terrible I Am. You know, in those moments, you know, and then we're frustrated with ourselves and we 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 close the windows and the window shades and turn off the lights and we start having a party of self pity, a pity party, <laughs> and and it is like Jesus is standing at the door of our hearts and, and trying to call hello, um, you. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but more or less, you know, just saying, can you just for a second not think about yourself, please? You know, because Frustration with ourselves is very often a sign of pride. I can't accept the fact that I'm not God. I make mistakes. So those three things are kind of a big problem when it comes to um, seeing the truth of real things, of seeing things as they are. And those things then end up driving us to make really bad decisions. Because we're not seeing things as they are, they, they end up driving us to walk right into a crevice in our lives, you know, into a Gletscherspalt. spalt, and and that's like not good. So it's good to be able to see what is what is like the smog in my life. You know, what is not allowing me to see, and and usually one of those three things I mentioned, usually one of them is a bit more. Um, we all we all have all three of those things, but. Usually one of them is a bit more um, marked than, than the others, and it's, it's it's not bad to be able to understand that about oneself. Okay. um. There's an idea from Edith Stein where she says... Oh, this is in German now. I'm just realizing. <laughs> Basically what she's saying is, if you just look at yourself, um, this turning around <laughs> yourself is... It's not enough, you know. The more you enter into yourself, the more you end up meeting nothingness. There's an idea from Karl Valentin, which is kind of the same. He says, "Jemand sagte mir, ich sollte in mir gehen," and I answered, "Da war ich schon, da war nicht viel los." Like somebody told me to go in into myself, and I answered, "Well, I was there already. There wasn't much happening." You know? Because the human person, his deepest, again, his deepest identity is to be a child of God. It's to be in relationship. You know, who, our God is a triune God. So there's a Father, there's a Son, and there's a Spirit. There's to say God is triune. G.K. Chesterton would say it's just a complicated way of saying God is love. Because if someone is loving, someone is being loved, and the love's so strong between them it has a name: the Holy Spirit. Um, just like we see that in a couple. You no, know, there's. Pepito Pepita, and Pepita and Juanito know that comes out of it sometimes after nine months. Yeah. Like sometimes the love between two people can be so strong that it has a name. Yeah. And God is relationship. That's his deepest, that's his deepest essence. Um, the only thing that distinguishes the three three persons from each other is their relationship to the other. Their total father total self-giving to the son, the son is total orientation towards the father. And we're images of that, so trying to just live for oneself, like this idea of life is about me, is, um, it, it couldn't be more contrary to the Christian idea. You know? This 1968 Woodstock rock concert motto, um, if it feels good, do it, you know, put yourself in the center of your life. Um, like realize yourself, that's not at all a Christian worldview. It's, it couldn't be more diametrically opposed. Life is not about you. And because our calling, our deepest calling, and I think all of us sense that somewhere in the deepest yearning of our hearts is, is to lead a life of love, of being able to give oneself and being able to receive love. And, and that's our deepest calling. And, and so just you know, turning around ourselves and just looking at introspection, um, at the end of the day, it's going to end up with, with nothingness. And it leads to life of emptiness. Now, again, for the Christian worldview, one would say, well, at the end of the day, the deepest, um, the deepest answer to that yearning for a relationship um, is it's God who gives that to us. Um, it's it's His absolute love, His absolute affirmation of our lives, and saying, I'm going to affirm your life even beyond death. Um, That gives meaning to our lives. That gives purpose to our lives. And Because if we don't give an answer to the question of death, we haven't given any answer to the real questions about life, really, at the end of the day. Um, if At the end of the day, if there is no future, then what we do right now is pretty meaningless. If at the end of the day, everything we do is going to end up in a big graveyard anyway, the whole universe is going to end up in some graveyard somewhere, um, then what I do right now is... Pretty senseless, because at the end of the day, then, it doesn't matter if your life was Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa of Calcutta, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And, and that's kind of one of the, the big questions, I think, also, that, that is good to ask oneself one to you one. Know? Like, what is my purpose? Why am I here? You know? and, and, and to try to understand, okay, what is the deeper truth, the deepest meaning of my life? You know? What is it? What is it? Is it to live for myself? Is it live for others? What, what is the deeper meaning of, of why God has put me here? And at the end of the day, also the question, um, it, is it going to be indifferent if I walk the face of this planet or not? Does it, does it really make any difference? And from a Christian worldview, you say it makes all the difference. It's a huge difference. You know? And to be able to discover that in a deeper and a deeper way is part of the goal of what we want to do on this weekend. Um, maybe a last idea I want to share with you um, before we go into small groups is, is this idea of responsibility. A lot of times, not accepting the truth leads to lack of responsibility. Um, like there's another, another quote here I have from Regenheim I wanted, that says kind of the same idea. As long as you feel sorry for yourself or see yourself as a victim of circumstance, you won't be in a position to solve your problems. No, Not taking responsibility for my life. I remember one of my fellow <coughs> brothers, when he, he came to us and he was doing kind of practica, like kind of a, an apprenticeship. Um, this was many years ago. And today he's a, he's a wonderful priest and a wonderful legionary, but at the beginning he had a long way to go because he was incapable of taking responsibility for things. So everything else was always at fault. Um, the, co- the culture, the city I'm working in, the people i'm working with the people in my community the weather the food you no know, everything else was responsible but he could never take responsibility for his own action and that's a sign of immaturity right not wanting to, to face reality as it is and that leads to a lack of meaning responsibility and meaning are very closely connected and that's why responsibility and truth are very closely connected to recognize things as they are leads to, um, leads to, responsi- to responsibility. Uh, kind of the basic idea from the Bible comes very, 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 at the very, very beginning, right after the Adam and Eve story, the story with Cain and Abel. And you might remember, um, Cain is not too happy because God doesn't accept his offering. Um, and, and then he ends up killing his brother because he wants to face any, any remembrance of that there, you could live a higher life, that you could live Live in a way which is more, yeah, yeah, which is more corresponding to the reality, more corresponding to truth. And I'm sure you've had experiences like this, you know, where where in your own life you've been tempted to do something like this or you've seen it from others, where somebody who's trying to live a certain, let's say, moral idea or is very inspiring in a certain way, that other people start criticizing that person or start criticizing you. Um, Not because it's about you as a person but rather because they can't handle the fact that there's a mirror in front of them um, that's inviting them to, be, to go higher, to, to live a higher life, to take responsibility for certain things. And, and this is why it's interesting, again this is kind of an archetypal story, it's a, it's a paradigmatic story, At the very beginning of history that a lot of times the temptation is to kill everything in me that reminds me of my responsibility. And to flee, you no, know, from that, and to to kind of efface it, to get rid of it, to stamp it out, um, to kind of warp my own conscience. For example, sometimes it's not somebody exterior; it's not, not my brother. Sometimes it's something it much clo- closer, like my own conscience. You know, that's telling me, hey, you know, you can do better. You, you there's so much more potential in you. You know, there's you can go so much further. Um, open yourself to God, what God wants to do with your life. You know, and and I don't want anything to do with it, and I just flee. You know, I, I run away, and and that's. Um, yeah, that's not a good idea, um, and it's the best way to live a life deprived of meaning and purpose. You know, if you want to do that, that's, that's a great way to do it, is <laughs> to get rid of anything that reminds you of responsibility, and it's very childish, right? Um, stop the world, I want to get off. Um, and often enough, this avoidance of responsibility leads to embitterment when difficult situations arise because I start blaming the world for my problems. And my grandmother and everybody else, um, or my brother, or whoever. No, because it's kind of this idea from Sartre: um, "Hell, that's my neighbor." Not a very positive view of of the next person, next of kin. No, hell, that's my neighbor. Um, so, um, yeah. So maybe at the end we could ask ourselves some questions. Now we're going to go into small groups, maybe for half an hour and we're going to have mass at 11, at 11.30. Yeah, so we have actually 40 minutes or about half an hour for small groups. Um, And I don't know how you want to do this. We didn't, did you, we didn't, we could just count through one, two, three, or you want to do it that way, yeah? So, okay, we're gonna divide the groups in a second, but there, there's three questions for the small group discussion, and, and that is, what have I understood? What remains unclear? What does this mean for us? If this is true, what could be the consequence for, for our lives? That'd be general questions. Maybe personal questions could be these. Um, what is my image of God, tyrant, father, friend, king? You could also talk about that in a group, but maybe some of these things are more personal, and you'd rather you know, talk to God about it and not maybe to somebody else. Um, are there areas of my life where I refuse to accept reality? Life is not about you, or is it? You know, take like question three is really good to be take, like, to go before the Lord in the <laughs> Blessed Sacrament in the chapel and really ask yourself that question honestly. Is life about me, or is it about is it not about me? Okay. And then four, do I see responsibility as a demand of love or as a mere duty? Do I learn, lean into it or flee from it? Okay. This, this last study I think also is important because especially in the German speaking world, I notice we're very much influenced um, by the thinking of, of Kant, of duty for the sake of duty. You know? um, I can't have chocolate during Lent. Why? Because it's Lent. I've got to go to mass on Sunday. Why? Because it's mass on Sunday. Because we've always done it that way. Um, you can't have sex before marriage. Why? Because I said so. You know? So it's, it's for the sake, like, but that doesn't lead to freedom. You know? Exterior norms, just imposed from the outside, they're not in correspondence with the dignity of the human person, because freedom means I recognize the value and I freely decide for that value. So with little kids, maybe you can start that way, but you know, we need to have reasons for the things that we do. We need to understand why we do certain things. And, and that leads to freedom. That leads to liberty. You know, when, when, I, when I understand why I want to do this. And so the motivation, if I just do things because, well, this is my social context, or this is my cultural values, or because my mother told me this in religion class, or because whatever, um, this is the way we've always done things, that's not a good way to lead to freedom. And as soon as you leave that context, a lot of times you end up getting rid of all those values. Because there's... It's just—it's a house of cards. There's no foundation. And so again, this is why it's so important to see the truth of things. You know, to understand what are what are—is this like, what is behind this? You know, it just doesn't fall together like a house of cards. Anyway, um, yeah, we're going So we're gonna go into the groups. Wolfgang, you want to?